welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. I traveled to Madrid, the site of the 25th Climate Change Conference of the Parties, affectionately known as the COP. And while I'm deciphering climate speak, parties is the name for sovereign nations, or as we like to call them, countries. Today, there are 195 nations meeting here in Madrid to try and work out how to tackle climate change. Ground zero for this discussion was the 1992 Rio Earth Summit, which was officially COP1. The Rio Summit was at the time the largest gathering of heads of state in human history. I had just finished law school at Berkeley, where I'd focused on the relationship between human rights and the environment. Back in 92, I was a true believer in the power of international law, convinced that if we came together, we could construct a way of getting ourselves out of the mess we had created. Here's the Prime Minister of Norway, Gro Harlem Brundtland, at the 1992 Rio Earth Summit. There are less than 400 weeks left of the 20th century. Time is short for us to rectify the present unsustainable patterns of human development. We must reconcile human activities with the laws of nature human survival. Narrowly focused national priorities will only hamper progress and stand in the way. We need radical decisions at this crisis meeting on humanity's future. We cannot betray future generations. They will judge us harshly if we fail at this crucial moment. We have a moral duty. We have the means. We have many of the ways. We, each of us, are responsible. We will be held accountable. Thank you. It took another 13 years after the Rio Earth Summit, including the poorly implemented Kyoto Climate Agreement and climate meetings in places like Bali and Copenhagen, to reach the much-touted Paris Agreement in 2015. Here's what President Obama declared at the time. I committed this country to the tireless task of combating climate change and protecting this planet for future generations. Two weeks ago, in Paris, we succeeded. We came together around the strong agreement the world needed. We met the moment. So we cannot be complacent because of today's agreement. The problem's not solved because of this accord. But make no mistake, the Paris Agreement establishes the enduring framework the world needs to solve the climate crisis in an effective way. This agreement is ambitious, with every nation setting and committing to their own specific targets. Full implementation of this agreement will help delay or avoid some of the worst consequences of climate change and will pave the way for even more progress in successive stages over the coming years. Then, unfortunately, as quick as you could say Madrid, Trump became president, implementing a scorched earth policy towards all environmental protections at home and abroad, which meant that he promptly pulled the United States out of the Paris Agreement. 
Back here in Madrid, it's hard to listen to that clip of Obama. It's, it's actually nearly impossible to reconcile the differing reality we now occupy. On the streets of Madrid, the conference got launched with a very large youth protest. The power of people, and youth in particular, as vocalized by Greta Thunberg, really helped me understand the big gap between what was agreed in Paris and the failure of nations to take meaningful action to implement their commitments. Finding holistic solutions is what the COP should be all about. But instead, it seems to have turned into some kind of opportunity for countries to negotiate loopholes and to avoid raising their ambition. Only setting up distant dates and saying things which give the impression of that action is underway. The real danger is when politicians and CEOs are making it look like real action is happening when, in fact, almost nothing is being done apart from clever accounting and creative PR. There is no sense of urgency whatsoever. Our leaders are not behaving as if we were in an emergency. In an emergency, you change your behavior. We can start the change right now. We, the people. Now it's time to head to the actual climate negotiations. These are taking place in what feels like the world's biggest and coldest airport. With no clocks or natural light, a lot of security checkpoints, only fast food to eat, and both first-class lounges and people sleeping on the floor of the terminal. And it's nearly impossible to find the exit. The word most used at the Madrid Climate Confab is ambition, as in, we need more ambitious targets. What is discussed much less, however, is how we're actually going to implement what's already been agreed. I meet up with Derwood Zelke, who's the founder and president of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development, and was president of the Center for International Environmental Law. Mr. Zelke currently teaches at UC Santa Barbara's Bren School, and I've known Derwood since the Rio Earth Summit in 92. He's one of the world's leading authorities on international environmental frameworks. So, Derwood, how many of these things have you been to? Way too many. <laughs> Probably <laughs> at least 20. Okay. And is it like an addiction? You just like, you went at COP24 and now you just have to go to COP25? Do you just feel like... FOMO if you're not there? Oh boy, that's a dangerous question. We all have our justifications for coming. We think we're going to have a great meeting with these people from Milan and you're going to do a new climate solution that might save the world. So we come for the side excitement. And, and yeah, it's a little bit addictive. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's exhausting. And if you're not careful, you're like one of the walking dead who roam the halls looking for someone to meet with and sit down and have coffee and talk about the business that you don't have and how I can get my consulting gig. So you got to avoid that. Yeah, those sound like the, yeah, definitely the zombies of the conference of the parties. It's kind of, I was thinking of the, the name for the podcast this week can be Good Cop, Bad Cop. So what's the good cop part? <laughs> Uh, the good cop is that when you leave these meetings, you realize 
you got to do a lot more because the people here are not solving climate change. So it's motivating in a perverse way, the same way that Donald Trump has been motivating for the state of California or the cities around the United States. They've stepped up to the plate. The demand for climate governance doesn't stop. It finds different expressions. And so with uh, these cops, you see, you can't solve climate change by dancing around the world and meeting once a year and expecting to, uh, to go further. It, it doesn't happen. Your entire career has been in promoting international legal frameworks and how we can leverage international law to get local action. Given that, your pessimism here, like, well, what changed? Well, I, I, I'm not pessimistic about our chances of saving the climate system. I'm pessimistic that this system is capable on its own of doing that job. It can't. I mean, you can't negotiate with 195 countries and expect a process to lead you to binding uh, uh, strong agreements. It, it's not going to happen, especially because the fossil fuel industry, which is funding this, this meeting, is just way too powerful. They've learned how to slow this down. Again, as I said, it's a slow waltz that suits the fossil fuel industry perfectly. They'll be happy to pay for meetings around the world once a year to keep us occupied. So in the 1800s in, uh, in London, the poorhouses were situated on the periphery of London. They were one day's walk apart, and you could get tea and two slices of bread as your meal and stay one night. And then you had to walk all day to the next poorhouse and get another meal. That's sort of what we're doing right now. We're getting this thin gruel that keeps us walking around. But we're not getting strong and healthy, and we're not rising up in rebellion. The kids are doing this. I mean, Greta, who's the big star? It's on the side. It's Greta. Even Al is coming back with a, a new fire that he hasn't had for a while, showing that, uh, that he can be motivated by the youth to be even more courageous than he's been in the past. And that, that rubs off on all of us. But we can't take it into this negotiation and expect it to give us more. We take it out. Take it outside. So, so this week, Derwood, a uh, report on the Arctic came out. And um, what does it say? Well, it says that we're losing the climate battle. The, the Arctic is warming at least twice the rate as the rest of the world. And now we're losing the reflective sea ice and we're collapsing permafrost, what used to be permanent frost. And as you collapse that, you emit stored carbon dioxide, methane, the super pollutant, 84 times more powerful in a 20-year period, and N2O, which both destroys stratospheric ozone and causes climate warming. So this, we're seeing a wicked cascade unfold where the Earth is warming itself. And what it means is speed becomes the metric that we have to impose now. We need fast mitigation. As we solve that part, we have a possibility of getting to carbon neutrality at 20 45, 2050, as soon as we possibly can. But if you don't solve the first part with the short-lived climate pollutants, you don't have a chance of solving the second part with CO2 mitigation at uh, 2050. So we get more and more bad news. It's kind of more and more puts us in a catatonic state where we just like seize up, don't know exactly what to do. I think many people reading the newspaper this week think that the thing to do is to put a lot of faith 
in this institution, which is the United Nations Conference of the Parties as it relates to climate change. And yet I'm hearing that that is a place we might not want to put as much faith as the media and everyone suggests is, is worth it. The UN is simply not the forum to solve all of climate change. And, and it's making it clear that we need more outside. So look at the uh, G7, the G20, the major economies forum, these smaller venues. So if you do the G20, that's 20 countries that are 85% of all climate emissions. They can sit around a table and they can actually negotiate. So if you do this with steel, I can do it with aluminum. You do this with your forest, I can do this with cement. And we can level the competitive playing field much more easily in a small table. When you try to do 195 countries, you're, you're just getting too much noise to get down to the business. I appreciate that. So, so there is a multilateral global solution. It just may not be anchored in the United Nations itself. It, it may be a smaller group, and, and it also may be moving towards a sectoral approach where we take a piece of the climate problem out just like we did with the fluorinated gases and HFCs under the Montreal Protocol, you learn how to solve that piece with a governance approach that learns as it progresses. Montreal Protocol is known as a start and strengthen treaty. We start, we learn by doing, we gain confidence, and we do more. 32 years, we've had incredible success. And that treaty, by the way, has solved an amount of climate change that otherwise would be as bad as CO2 is today, as well as protecting the stratospheric ozone layer. So this is a brilliant treaty. California's been a big supporter, of course, led the way on a lot of the technology. So you take that model of a sectoral approach, say, well, why don't we do the same thing for cement, for aluminum, for steel? Not every country makes aluminum. It's a handful of countries that dominate this. Same with cement. So you can actually figure out competitiveness. And so you care less if you're uh, in the cement industry about having to raise your prices because you might have new technology demands if everyone in the industry does the same thing. And so competitiveness becomes key. And again, in this uh, forum with 195 countries, it's a lot harder. So sectoral pieces that can be plugged back into Paris. You know, it's fine. We can use Paris for accounting purposes in a plug-and-play system. As you know, I'm a big fan of the role art can play in informing how we relate to climate and the environment. In episode 12 of Podship Earth, we talked with David Buckland about a project by Michael Pinsky called Pollution Pods. Well, those very same pollution pods are right here in Madrid at the COP. Pinsky replicated the pollution levels of cities around the world, including their smell and temperature, in five geodesic domes. I went to go and find them. I met at the pollution pod entrance by Hayeza Ruiz Hueso, who works for Cape Farewell. This one is made Michael Pinsky. Michael Pinsky is an artist that he wants to show us that if we change our pollution, we can change our crisis climate too, because there are two phases of the same coin, because seven million of people die per year about that one. We are going to see five different cities around the world. That number is the level of the pollution. Between zero and 20 is IFRS. Between zero and 24, it's recommended by WHO. 
More than that one, it's not recommended. The artist, Michael Pinsky, actually came up with the idea for these pollution pods in Trondheim, Norway, where the air is very clear. So this one's Trondheim. Yeah. So what does Trondheim smell like? I don't know. What do you think? It smells, it smells like a hair salon. Um, yeah. They say like olive. Yeah. Something like that. Okay, where are we the going? The people say that one. And in London, they say like uh, gasoline. Yeah. I don't know. I'd rather smell like trees than gasoline. Yeah, here, yes. Like yeah. a forest, something okay, like that. Okay, you're going to bring us to the next one or you have to stay no, here? No, I can stay here. You okay, go. so the next one we're going to is London. And then where? New Delhi. New Delhi, okay. Beijing. Where is the Sao next Paulo. one after New Delhi? Oh, Beijing. Beijing and Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo, okay. Right here on the top of the I don't know if it's going to Camp Michael Pinsky or no. Okay. So. We are not for sure. In my wanderings, now we're in London, which I grew up in. Um, I'm with Eric Nordman, who just happens to be walking by. So, Eric, have you been to London before? I have. Does this smell like it? It smells cleaner than London. I wouldn't say it. It reminds me of London. It's not like, um, I don't know, the, the essence of London, but I think the intensity of the air. There is a bit of a gasoline kind of smell. Yeah. And uh, it's very foggy in here, too. So maybe that's those fo- famous London fogs from the coal pollution and all of that. And, like, what attracted you to come and look at this art installation? There's so much, like, politics and, like, people negotiating. Like, how, how did you end up here? I needed a break. I was in one of those uh, plenary session rooms this morning and yeah. uh, felt like I, I should get out and explore the, the green zone a little bit. Yeah. I haven't been over here yet. So the green zone is like where all the innovative stuff is meant to be happening. This was the first thing that I came to. I'm like, I want to see it. Yeah. This is very cool. Okay. Uh, so this is London. Let's, let's, Eric, let's go to the next one. See what, yeah. Okay. This one smells really bad. I'm not sure what this oh. is. This is Delhi. Okay. You can barely see across the, the pod. We're in this dome. And, uh, yeah, it's so thick with pollution or simulated pollution that you can hardly see across hardly one side. Breathe. And you can hardly breathe. It's very intense. It's really nasty. This is bad. So that was Delhi. I definitely don't want to be visiting Delhi too soon. Oh, my God. This is Beijing coming up next. It's a lot colder in here. here. Yeah. Delhi was hot. Yeah. It's even thicker. The pollution is even thicker. It's harder to see. It doesn't seem quite as intense as Delhi. What are the numbers here? 120. Okay, so it's lower, lower, but more pea soup. You can't see the sky. No. It's it's not a place that you want to spend any time. You'd want to... Yeah. I can feel it in my, like, tonsils. Yeah, it kind of does constrict your throat a little bit. <coughs> okay, what's the last one we're going to? Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo. Here we go, Sao Paulo. Wow, Sao Paulo is remarkably clean. <laughs> okay, so this was about what Madrid was this morning? Yeah. Is, that, is that right? Yeah, it's a lot cleaner. Is the last one we go to where we started? Yes. Okay, Tron time. I would have thought Sao Paulo would be a lot worse. I would have thought so too. So this is educational. Mm-hmm. We now know Delhi seems like the worst, maybe because it was hotter. Beijing seemed pretty bad. Sao Paulo seems a lot better than I would have thought. So um, what are you doing for the rest of the day, Eric? 
I'll attend some more sessions and try to do some writing. So I'm writing about uh, the work of Eleanor Ostrom. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics. When did she win? She won in 2009. She was awarded the prize for her work on common pool resource management. So what, what is common pool resource management? Common pool resources are resources like fisheries and forests and clean air that are easy to extract from, but hard to uh, prevent people from accessing. So you might have heard of the tragedy of the commons where people will race to harvest all the fish before someone else gets there. So her work showed that people can overcome the tragedy of the commons where the people, the resource users themselves, come together to create rules and enforce them. And that's very much aligns with uh, the structure of the Paris Agreement. That's really interesting. And thank you, Eric, for being here. Back in the cavernous convention hall, I meet up with Romina Piccolotti, or as she would say it. My name is Romina Piccolotti. Romina is the former environment minister of Argentina and is now president of the Center for Human Rights and the Environment. I start by asking Romina, what exactly the thousands of people are doing at the COP? Yeah, well, that's a good question. (laughs) They're supposed to be saving the earth. Uh, but I think we're far away from that. Uh, I think this process, you know, um, is a perfect distraction of what we need, really need to be done, uh, which is awakening head of states leadership uh, that uh, grasp the climate crisis and put a package of solutions together to save us all. And uh, this is a negotiation. This is this is COP 25, 25 years of negotiation, and I think uh, at one point it will produce but it will not produce in time that we need. Uh, so leadership is, is crucial, and there's no leadership here at the, at the political level that we need. And Romina, how many conference of the parties have you been to? Well, I have been to many <laughs> conference of parties, but I think the, mo- the best moment that we had for really doing something was in Copenhagen, when we have the presidents coming to the COP and discussing this and discussing uh, what they could have been done. And we lost that political momentum. And the lack of leadership of the U.S. Uh, has really done a tremendous <laughs> damage to, to this process and the fact that uh, the U.S. has announced that they will leave Paris. The good news is that we do have the solutions and we're working with some leaders uh, at the head of a state level that want to do something and want to put some solutions together. What are the measures that can deliver fast on mitigation and avoid tipping points? You've been very focused on short-lived climate pollutants, and I think most people think of all greenhouse gases being equal, but you spend a lot of time explaining that action in some areas can be more helpful sooner. Yes, I mean, CO2 is a, is a long-term gas that, that lives a lot in the atmosphere, a lot, many, many years. And we're focusing on the atmospheric gas that have a short uh, life in the atmosphere. One of these is black carbon. Uh, and this is very important because basically the, the way that we're approaching this issue is not only as a climate issue, but as an uh, alleviation of poverty as well. So every dollar that you invest on climate mitigation should also help you lift people out of poverty. We don't want to create a, a war where climate is great, but there's huge inequality. So black carbon is one of these gases. It only lasts between 15 days to a month in the atmosphere, but it's also an air pollutant. It's one of the main causes of premature death of children. Right? So you need to invest on this kind of, uh, on, not only because it's morally correct, but if you want to take care of children's uh, health, 
it's very important that you clean the earth. And while cleaning the earth, you help climate at the same time. Uh, so this is, this is one of the gases that we're focusing on. The other gas is HFCs. Basically, it's the gas that you use for cooling. And cooling is not only you know, your room air conditioning or the car air conditioning, being able to eat fresh food. Um, for farmers, it's essential to be able to sell in the market uh, fresh products. And it's also essential for data. You cannot have data storage without cooling. So cooling all of the sudden is in everything that we do in life and, um, and has an enormous impact in climate. But we can reduce it by changing the refrigerant that we use for cooling and at the same time increase the energy efficiency. If we do that, uh, we can avoid almost a degree of warming, one degree of warming. And here we're fighting for 1.5. So one degree of warming is a lot. And we're working specifically on, on this issue. We already have 100 governments uh, ratify the, the amendment. So this is really big. Earlier I talked to Derwood Zelke, who reminded me that the hole in the ozone layer is actually getting fixed. So given that, why have we made so little progress in 25 years of climate change negotiations? Yeah. Well, I see what the Montreal Protocol was a success is because we had a hole in the roof. I mean, the ozone layer, everybody understood. What you know, um, when you have a hole in the roof, people get well willing to fix it immediately. You know, you cannot wait around to negotiate. Uh, you really need to put your, your work together and, and fix it. And in, with climate, we're talking about one degree, two degrees. It's something that people that are not inside this world really do not grasp the emergency that we are. We're facing, you know, an extinction of humanity. And um, fossil fuel companies are putting that, it's, it's, it's just the greed of fossil fuel companies. So how did it work? So first you have the developing countries moving, and then when you have countries moving, the technologies, the price of technologies go down, and then you can afford them and you have some help to make the changes in developing countries. So it was, it was a protocol that built trust and they took care of inequality that we were talking about. Right, and, and this is why I think it was so successful. You were saying how there's a tremendous impact of not having U.S. leadership. Like, how does that manifest itself? Well, uh, the U.S. is an amazing country with uh, so many resources and, and the capacity to transform reality and to do the right thing, right? Even though it shakes the economy. The country came stronger and better because doing the right thing. And that's the leadership that the U.S. has. It has an enormous power in, in terms of emissions, but because it has an enormous power in terms of, of leadership and innovation and moving markets. So, and unfortunately, nobody has taken that role. But it seems that, you know, the U.S. is, is still the one steering the boat and unfortunately steering the boat to the extinction of humanity at this point. And um, so this is, this is the impact that we have seen or seen here in the negotiations. But I think also more and more we're seeing people on the streets understanding the issue, understanding the importance of this and claiming for the answers. Uh, and we need to support them with the right science, with the technologies that, you know, the right answers. People put a lot of faith in the solutions coming out of Madrid or Paris or Copenhagen. 
Is that faith misplaced? Should we be focusing on other things, local, state, national actions? We're at a point that we need from everywhere. Everywhere, action everywhere, internationally, nationally, at the mayor's level. We don't have the luxury anymore to say this needs to happen here. This COP is not attracting the powers of change. You know, the powers of change are on Minister of Finance, I think at the state level, I mean, California is, is a great example. I mean, California has, you know, showed the world that this, I mean, you can decouple the economy, uh, the emissions, and at the same time growth economically. We're looking right now at the U.S., at the state leadership, really, giving everybody some hope that things can, uh, can keep moving to the, right, to the right direction. And we're hearing, I mean, this, the U.S. Climate Action um, Coalition uh, alliance, right? And it's doing a lot of things with the state and, and we're grateful that many states have decided to move forward despite of what is the federal government position today. Like the NGOs are in one place and the, all the bureaucrats are in another and they never meet. Like I, I kind of thought this would all be one big, great, happy family, but it isn't. No, it isn't. And I think this is something that we need to fix immediately. In, in Copenhagen, we were all together. You know, and, and the head of states were there. It was the first time ever that the head of state came to a climate negotiation. And I think uh, it was great because people could access the power. Uh, and I think we see people on the streets everywhere because people are reclaiming access to the power, you know? And this institution still is not reacting to that. They, so they got so afraid in Copenhagen that after Copenhagen, they split. Civil society is in one side and the the decision makers are in the other side. And you cannot have a good decision making without having a contact with society. That's impossible. The next conference of the parties will be in Scotland in 2020. Romina, will you be going? We'll see. We'll see. I mean, I haven't lost faith in humanity being able to solve global problems. Um, but I think we need to recognize that physics uh, do not care about politics and we have to, to move at a speed that this institution has never delivered. So uh, we cannot wait for them anymore. We need to move forward. A huge thank you to Derwood Zelke, Hazel Ruiz Hueso, Eric Nordman, Romina Piccolotti, and all the amazing people who spent time in Madrid and home committed to finding global solutions to the climate crisis. At the end of the week, it's hard to work out what the formal negotiations accomplished, but what is without a doubt is that between youth protesters, dedicated governments, NGO activists, and forward-thinking businesses, there's a huge awakening that we need bold actions, and that there's a great deal being done at the local and state level, which if replicated, could be a large part of the solution. It's not what I imagined when I graduated from law school with the hope that international laws would help us achieve harmony with nature. But in many ways, the collage of local actions, when joined together, will be a lot more resilient to the national political changes like the ones we're still feeling from 2016. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn. And from me, Jer Blumenfeld, I'm so glad to be back in the daylight.